Hello and welcome to the Biology of Superheroes podcast. I'm your host, Shane Campbell Staten. Uh, we're back after a long summer of research. I got to spend several weeks in beautiful South Africa studying elephants and seeing some of the most incredible wildlife on the planet. It was truly inspirational. So in celebration of that inspiration, we're going to kick off a brand new season with the Black Panther in the world of Wakanda. This episode was recorded live at the historic Roxy Theater in Missoula, Montana as part of the 2019 International Wildlife Film Festival. We chat about bio-inspiration, sustainability, and bio-inspired engineering as seen in the movie and the comic books. And then we explore the roles of culture and genetics in shaping this incredible population. I interview Billy Allman, a bioengineer, and Dr. Sebastian Alvarado of City University of New York. They share their thoughts on the world of Wakanda and what we can learn from this truly advanced civilization. So get ready to gear up. Because season two of the Biology of Superheroes podcast starts now. Ladies and gentlemen, the Biology of Superhero podcast. Please welcome Shane and Arian. So as we get into this, and Shane sets up the laptop here, we got a presentation for you guys. Um, as we've been introduced, I'm Arian Darby, so I'm the uh, sort of sci-fi comic book uh, half of the duo here, and Shane is obviously the scientist and uh, really excited to be back here with you guys. Uh, this is the second year that we've had an opportunity to share uh, our podcast experience with the International Wildlife Film Festival. So very huge thanks to the organizers for bringing us out again. And we're excited to talk to you guys about all things Black Panther. Yeah, for sure. There we go. Yeah. So today we're talking about Black Panther. You guys just watched the Black Panther movie, right? I mean, can I give it up for the Black Give it up for the Black Panther. So dope. It's pretty it's cool, crazy. Right? So dope. Yeah, so when we're thinking about the Panther, obviously there's a lot that goes into this character. So Aaron, first, like, let's take a little bit of a background approach to this. Like, give us a little bit of background about who this person is. Sure. So historically, he was originally created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby in 1966. So the character's been around for a while. And he was actually the first African-American superhero to appear in mainstream comics and also the first superhero to be gifted with superpowers from an African-American perspective. So quick point of clarification, uh, Black Panther wasn't technically the first African-American superhero in the Marvel Universe. No, he was actually the first black superhero of African descent, but not the first African-American superhero. Okay, so if I had to guess, I would say that my man Luke Cage, the hero for hire, was probably the first African-American superhero, because he, he came out in like the late 60s. Yeah, actually 1972, and you'd be close. He was one of the earliest, but there was one that snuck in before him. Before Luke Cage. Yeah, uh, believe it or not, it's 
Falcon. Oh, dip. My man Sam Wilson. Captain America, number 115, 1969. Man, he's come a long way from, uh, from 69 to now, you know, being the sidekick to actually picking up the mantle of Captain America from Steve Rogers. Yeah, he was the successor of Steve Rogers, and I think in 2015, he actually led the charge of the Captain America series as the title character. Oh, that's what's up. And let's hear it for our black superheroes for a second. You know, one of the things that, um, uh, so bringing it back to the Black Panther, you know, one of the things that I, I think is interesting is that, you know, a lot of people think that Black Panther was actually named after the Black Panther Party, and they actually changed the name of Black Panther for a while because of this, you know, because it was like too controversial at the time. But the Black Panther came out in 66. The Black Panther Party was not founded until 1969. A lot of stuff happened in 1969, apparently. Yeah, busy times. So yeah, so quick point of clarification, let's dive back in. And, uh, you know, as far as his powers and abilities go, you saw a lot in the movie that's reflected, but just as a recap, he's obviously got super strength, he's got agility, he's got speed, he also is of a genius intellect, he is rich. Uh, some <laughs> can consider that a superpower. I'm certainly not rich, yeah. so I sometimes I think of that a as a, a superpower. I wish I had a superpower. Uh, he's a combat expert. Uh, he has enhanced senses. So one thing that's really cool in the comic books is he can smell fear, and he can even smell if you're lying to him just by the change in your body odor. A little gross, but also <laughs> super interesting and useful, right? You can't get anything by him. And last but not least, he's also got access to uh, what's kind of described as the panther knowledge. So basically anyone that was a black panther before him, he has access to the wisdom and the strength of all of those people that came uh, before in that lineage. Awesome. So you know, when we're looking in the Black Panther movie that you guys just saw, you know, we actually get our first like in-depth look at Wakanda as a place. And I think it's just so amazing to take a look you know, at all of the diverse cultures, the crazy technology you know, that we see. And so just to sort of summarize, Arian, like, tell us who, who are all these different people that are interacting in Wakanda and the, and the different purposes that they serve uh, in the civilization? Yeah, so I mean, you can't talk about Black Panther without talking about Wakanda because it's its own uh, character, if you will. And the Wakandan culture has always, from day one in that first issue in Fantastic Four, been shrouded in mystery, but also um, just like this technologically advanced society that other people outside of the realm aren't even aware of. And it, you know, even just from a historical context, taking a step back, sometimes it's interesting to think about the continent of Africa and its successes. Uh, you know, there's parallels in the real world where if you look at civilizations such as ancient Egypt, uh, they were far more technologically superior in the realm of astronomy and uh, surgery and engineering in their day. And so even though Wakanda is a fictional place, we do have some historical context of where some of those ideas come into play in our own reality. But when you think about the Wakandans as a civilization, it's important to know a couple of things. One, they revere their history and the story of their people. Uh, number two, they revere this sense of um, self-determinism and um, sort of self-sustenance, right? Like they practice the sense of self-isolationism and they uh, are a self-sustaining people. And I think the third point there is that there's also this natural reverence for nature and harmony. 
And so you see that in the way the people uh, interact with each other too, even though they're divided by tribes, each tribe forms a specific role uh, that they kind of carry out in society. So you have the mining tribe, which is responsible for the mining of vibranium. You have the merchant tribe, which is responsible for the, uh, the commerce of the society. You have the river tribe, which manages the uh, flow of product up and down the, uh, the entire geographic region. You have the border tribe, which sort of, um, you know, kind of conceals their strength on the outside. They look like they're just, hmm. you know, kind of casual, everyday sheep herders. Yeah, um, and they also protect the border. But they protect the border, right? Because those are the ones that are in command of those war rhinoceros that we saw in the movie. And you have the Jabari tribe. They have chosen to kind of take a path more of self-isolationism, right? So they have separated from society. They don't use vibranium uh, within their own um, culture. So they, they're kind of the outsiders. But you also have the priests, which are in charge of all of the ritualistic things that happen uh, within the society. And you have the Dormelage, and that's the king's royal guard, the royal family's royal guard. Uh, and of course, the royal family, whichever uh, Wakandan is in charge, uh, they comprise the royal family. And that is um, basically achieved through trial by combat, which you guys all saw. Yeah. So when I'm thinking about Wakanda, right, I mean, we get this look at this amazing, incredible place that, you know, it's this beautiful city and all these different people are interacting. It's super advanced technology, but also it's in balance with the nature around it. And the technology itself is actually inspired by a lot of this nature. And here in the real world, you know, there are, there's an entire field of applied sciences that pulls inspiration from the natural world in order to solve problems that are meaningful to us as humans. And this is called biomimetics. Uh, so to get a deeper insight into this idea of biomimetics, I reached out to uh, a friend of mine, Billy Allman, who's uh, a designer for, three, uh, for theme park attractions, and uh, he's also the host of an uh, upcoming show on uh, Animal Planet, uh, and he's also uh, finishing up his, uh, his, his master's degree in uh, biomimicry right now. Uh, so let's hear a little bit about what he has to say about biomimicry. So as somebody who spends your time thinking about architecture and engineering and biomimicry, how do you see this play out in Black Panther? One of the first things that struck me about Black Panther was how so much of their technology is biomimetic, or, or you, can, you can see right away some of the inspiration um, that, that the production designer, Hannah Beekler, and their whole design team saw um, uh, in nature in some of the awesome technology that you see in the film. One of the things about Black Panther um, in the mythology is that, you know, they, the, the Wakandan society kind of emerged as an agricultural society. So they already had this, you know, very distinct connection to nature. And once they started cultivating and developing and experimenting with vibranium, uh, the, the kind of indestructible metal that, that is um, only found in Wakanda, uh, once they started experimenting with that, a lot of their inspiration was also based on their agricultural uh, history and background. So a lot, of the, a lot of the technology that they were already inherently developed, uh, a lot of the technology that they were inherently developing was also based on you know, organisms that they were familiar with as farmers, agriculturalists, and botanists. One of the most obvious uh, and really cool um, ways that you see it is actually in the fact 
uh, that the some of the, the ships that you see are modeled after insects. When you think of the Black Panther suit, there's so many things that are simple nuances, but uh, allude to biomimicry. I mean, everything from the way that the claws retract on his suit to, you know, even if you look at some of the finer details of even like the eyelids of his mask, uh, there's just all of these amazing little hints and details of, of this inspiration from nature that are just peppered throughout the entire film. Why do you think that this this intersection of inspiration and application, art and technology, what does it give us and why is it so important right now? When you look, when you look at where things are in the design world right now, we've got additive manufacturing, we've got rapid prototyping, um, we've got autonomous, uh, you know, robots that are automating so many different things now. Uh, when you look at all of those things in design and innovation, it's all about making things more efficient and and better and when you contrast that against the 3.8 billion years that life has been um on this planet you realize that nature has been doing those same things of of finding new ways to make things more efficient through natural selection and evolution uh for way longer and so when you look at nature through that lens you realize that we basically got a planet full of creatures that have been performing research and development for millions of years longer than we've been around. Mm. And why should we kind of try and reinvent the wheel when some of these organisms have already done the legwork for us? So I think that's a really cool perspective on engineering uh, and design. And obviously, like if we take a, a closer look at what we see in the movie, you know, a lot of their technology, especially the flyers, are you know very directly um, built to mimic animals that occur in that environment. Right. So when we look at uh, you know at these the really like sort of fast and darty flyers that they've built, they look very much like a dragonfly. And there's a reason, right? It's not just like oh, I like what a dragonfly looks like, so I'm going to make something that flies that looks like a dragonfly. But that design, it serves a very specific purpose. Dragonflies are one of the most efficient hunters on the planet. That's because they're extremely uh, good at maneuvering uh, at high speeds. They're really, really fast, which allows them to, to, pick, up, uh, to pick out prey uh, midair. And that's, those are like really great properties to have if you're trying to build you know, something that's really fast and really dodgy in order to, to say, like, fight your enemies. But then on the flip side, you also have these other set of flyers that are a little bit more bulky. They can carry a lot more stuff, which makes them really heavy. And that you run into a problem of efficiency, right? With all of that bulk, you actually you expend a lot of energy. Uh, and you know, energy is expensive for the most part. And, but also, insects have gone about trying to solve this problem as well. So beetles are extremely heavy uh, given, their, um, given their ability to fly. You know, and this, what, what we're seeing here is a goliath beetle, which is like one of the heaviest insects on the planet. And they have to deal with the same problem, right? They're super heavy and it takes energy for them to fly. And for them, like not having that energy, not being able to fly means the difference between life or death. So there are a lot of scientists now that are looking at the efficiency of flight in these big bulky creatures. And we see that mimicked in, uh, in, uh, the, uh, in the Black Panther movie. Uh, so, but we also see biomimicry um, very clearly in uh, T'Challa's suit. 
so for instance, we see this, uh, the stealthy uh, footwear that Shuri, his sister, uh, and head scientist in Wakanda makes for him. So in this scene, you know, we see T'Challa in his very first days as king picking up the mantle. Uh, and in this scene, he's actually walking into uh, the Wakanda lab, the technology lab of his, run by his little sister, Shuri. I have great things to show you, brother. Yes, the tech goddess extraordinaire, and she is on site to make sure our boy is looking fresh and clean. And this scene is it's like the first time we actually get to see the lab. You know, there's like, I mean, it is, I, just, I love, as a scientist, I love seeing this lab so much. It's a nerd's dream. The technology is absolutely ridiculous. You know, she's designed these crazy sneakers for him. He's got all this other tech happening in the lab. It's amazing. Yeah, it really just kind of supports the idea in the film of just how technologically advanced Wakanda is as a nation compared Absolutely. to the rest of the world. Yeah, and I think it also shows off Shuri's personality. I mean, she almost immediately just starts picking on him. He's like, you know, why you got your feet out in my lab? Like, you know, what is going on with this? And what are these? The real question is, what are those? <laughs> why do you have your toes out in my lab? But you don't like my royal sandals. You know, she designed the sneak. She, you know, designed these like ultra, you know, technologically advanced, um, like reconnaissance footwear that she calls sneakers because they're completely soundproof. Try them on. Fully automated, like the old American movie Baba used to watch. Mm. And I made them completely sound absorbent. Interesting. Guess what I call them? Sneakers. Because you. Never mind. Sneakers. Sneak up on people. You get it. Mm hmm. Sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, basically, she makes sure T'Challa is equipped to look the part, but also play the role um, as both an ambassador for the country and a hero for the world. Absolutely. Yeah, so the sneakers, uh, I, I mean, I think that was like one of the best scenes in the movie. Uh, and also, I got to say um, that the moment where she asks him why he has his toes out in her lab is like the realest moment in the entire movie. As a scientist with a lab myself, I can, I can definitely, I, I hear where she's coming from. But anyway, those, those silent shoes, you know, again, this is very similar to, uh, to the animal that, T'Challa gets his namesake from, like the Black Panther. So, I mean, these are really heavy animals. Um, you know, they're really um, bulky, but they also have to move around these really dense environments, right? And then there's a lot of foliage that can make a lot of noise. And one of the things that helps them is this, the specialized morphology of, uh, of their paws, right? So they have this really thick padding and this really thick fur uh, around their paws that help to sort of dissipate sound and dissipate pressure. And it helps them to move more silently through, uh, through their environments. You know, we also see uh, the retractable claws that T'Challa has, which are very important. Like we see him mess all kinds of people up with those throughout, uh, throughout the, the, uh, the Marvel multiverse. Uh, and these retractable claws, again, are very special to felines, right? So not 
uh, every animal, there are a lot of animals that have claws, but not all of them are retractable. Uh, and felines are one of the very few lineages that actually have these retractable claws. And it's a, a really interesting adaptation because basically, you know, what they've done is they've taken that the very last digit of their um, of their their feet and they've made it into a switchblade. Right? So that entire digit folds back and up uh, in uh, into the next uh, the the next digit behind it, and there's a specialized uh, tendon that, can, that then pulls that digit out in order for them to, to retract their claws. So, you know, given the, you know, the stealth and the claws, like, we also see that the very fighting style of T'Challa as the Black Panther is, you know, it's very inspired by the namesake, by the Black Panther, right? This really interesting combination of, you know, stealth, and strength and, and agility, right? This is what defines uh, the Black Panther as, as a superhero. But then also on the other side of the, of the equation, we have Killmonger. And, you know, we see, you know, he has these, all these scars when he takes off his, you know, the first scene when he takes off his shirt, he has like all these, uh, all these scars. And, you know, for him, it's, it was sort of, um, you know, you think he has a scar for every life Kill. he's taken mm -hmm. or something like that. You know, but, you know, this, uh, this design, this aspect of the, of the character was based on scarification rituals of the Chambri people of uh, Papua New Guinea. And this is a rite of passage, um, you know, to, to manhood uh, for these people. And, the, the reason why they do this, or like the, the raised flesh that comes from this, uh, is they're owed to the largest apex predator in their environment, which is the New Guinea crocodile, uh, Crocodilus uh, nova guineae, which is, uh, which, um, you know, has these, these, again, these raised bumps, right? So by them uh, doing this scarification ritual, they can adopt the strength of this, of this animal that they admire so much. But then if we take a step back and we look at you know, Wakanda, again, as a whole, this super advanced civilization, you know, they've also, they've gone about technologically advancing in a very different way than, than we see in our own world, right? So even though they are really advanced, they're also very attuned to their environment and their history and how they live, they have to be. Because they've been so isolated for so long, you know, a lot of their advancements, a lot of their growth is built on what is there, right? Because they're not really importing things, they're not really uh, exporting things. So they're, they have to really think carefully about how to conserve the resources that they have and how to renew uh, a lot of the resources that they have. So I asked Billy a little bit about this and how we see it in the movie. Let's hear what he has to say. If you looked at the buildings, if you looked at um, a lot of the, the city design uh, in the film, you know, all of those things, you had skyscrapers that were made out of, you know, yes, they were made out of vibranium or they had vibranium elements to it, but they were skyscrapers made out of natural materials that you could locally find within that setting and that ecology. You know, mm -hmm. you, had, you had adaptive technology. Um, you know, the way that we have designed things since the industrial revolution um, has been things that are durable and can withstand and are long lasting and don't change and are rigid. And that's not how nature designs things at all. You know, nature designs things to, to bend, but not necessarily break to be uh, recycled, to, to be adaptive 
Um, and now we're seeing that all of our designs need to have those same elements in it. Uh, and so that was one thing that I loved about, you know, the Wakandan designs that I was seeing, you know, this, this sense of, of modularity and, and, you know, this additive quality to them. The fact that the film basically starts with an ecology lesson of how, you know, this mineral crashed into this planet and it radiated, you know, the entire, you know, ecology of this region to the point where everything was affected by it. Um, you know, and, and, and the, the fact that they found this resource and, you know, have, have just tapped into, have just scratched the surface of its, of its brilliance. Um, but they recycle every single bit of it. You know, like none of the vibranium was wasted. They found new ways to take the vibranium pieces that they didn't use to create fabrics or, you know, like the, it's like when you go back to the film, you realize that their holographs were made out of sand, you know, mm. sand from, from the, the, the mine. Right. So like every single little bit of material was not wasted. And, and that was something that I, I recall uh, an interview with Ryan Coogler, where he was saying that was something that when he traveled to the continent, um, that he, uh, he realized that there was this, there was this ingenuity to how, um, things were recycled and repurposed, um, whenever he was traveling throughout Africa and, and to see that manifest in a futuristic, holistic way was like super impressive. So now we, when we look at Wakanda as a super advanced technology, you know, we can, um, you know, a, a super advanced technological civilization, you know, we can contrast that to, you know, the most advanced technological civilizations here in our world, on our planet. And you know, there's this really stark difference between the two and the fact that, you know, we are not very well connected with nature, especially in, you know, really dense population dense areas and you know i think wakanda in that sense offers this really interesting um inspiration for how to build an advanced civilization that is still in harmony with uh, the environment in which it exists yeah i'd say the um the model of sustainability that they've presented is is the inspiration but you know how how can we get there with what we have in our world because an element like vibranium doesn't exist, right? That's a fictional thing that's been made up in the MCU. It powers the technology, it powers the weaponry, it powers the clothing and the armor of the characters that we encounter in the comics and in the movies. Um, you know, and it can even conduct, store, and release energy. Uh, and it's been implemented with a couple of other characters in the Marvel Universe as well. So Captain America's shield, for instance, is made of vibranium, which is awesome. Uh, <laughs> if you watched the Infinity War movie, uh, the character Bucky, Winter Soldier, his arm was replaced by T'Challa's people with a vibranium arm. So they're finding uses to incorporate it from um, sort of an outsider perspective. But since vibranium isn't real, I, I guess the question becomes, is there even an element or a, an idea out there that sort of models the properties and the things that vibranium can do in the comic world? Yeah, exactly. And so when I'm thinking about vibranium, I'm 
think about two main things. Like one is the strength of the material. Like we see that it's just extremely resilient. So in our universe, we're looking for the single strongest material there is. You know, we get to graphene, carbon nanotubes, right? These are uh, typically artificially made. And, but they, these are the strongest materials that we know of. And we're talking about you know, materials that are, um, that are like 10 times stronger than steel, right? For the, for the same, uh, you know, at the same uh, diameter. And not only that, but it also has these really interesting properties of, you know, it's a good thermal conductor, it's a good electric conductor. You know, so it, it provides like some versatility for a bunch of different functions, kind of similar to what we see in, um, you know, with, with vibranium in, in, the, in the movie. But vibranium also has this other super interesting characteristic, and that's its ability to store and release energy. And we see that with T'Challa's new suit, and you know, he can, you know, get, you know, into a fight, like takes all of this punishment and all of that kinetic energy is, is stored and then he releases it in this, you know, this sort of shock wave. Uh, so we see that again sort of play out in, uh, in, uh, in Shuri's lab. So Aaron, give us a rundown of, of what we're seeing in this scene. So Shuri sets up the new suit and she challenges T'Challa to give it a kick just to see what happens. And the first time, Blasted across the room. Strike it. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Not that hard, genius. But the second time, she activates one of its newest abilities, and T'Challa winds up, delivers an impressive kick again. But this time, the suit actually captures the kinetic energy from his kick and delivers a blast in response that sends him flying. Which he does not appreciate even in the slightest. But she's got the footage of it for the rest of his days. <laughs> You're recording. For research purposes. Delete that footage. Yeah, so, yeah, this, is, this seems like something that's pure science fiction. Uh, so in order to get a better feel for, you know, if there's any sort of actual physical process in our universe that mimics this, uh, what we see on the screen, I reached out to uh, another scientist, uh, Dr. Uh, Sebastian Alvarado at the City University of New York. Uh, Sebastian is a biologist, but he's also a movie consultant, and he's, a, he's also the author of a new book called The Science of Marvel, uh, From Infinity Stones to Iron Man's Armor, The Real Science Behind the MCU Revealed. And I asked Sebastian about this unique energetic property of vibranium, and uh, he provided me with this really, really interesting answer. Um, I kind of like this idea of transferring like this kinetic energy into some sort of um, electric form that can be used in, in, at, at a miniaturized level for mm -hmm. something else. So I'm thinking about like basically every time uh, T'Challa would get one of those uh, hits when he's taking on the border tribe and then after the rhinos and then after he's taking on Killmonger, there's this, uh, you know, this purple glow that kind of accumulates in his suit. And it's great because when you're watching the movie, you're kind of like, oh, he's getting more purple, he's getting more purple and it gets, you know, it's going to turn into this one moment where everything kind of just you know, the odds are against them, everyone's stacked up on top of them, and then he just blows everybody away. And I, what I liked about that is this kind of idea that he could kind of have these piezoelectric shells 
that can turn this uh, this kinetic energy into some sort of stored form of um, of electricity that could kind of fuel some sort of other device that would create these shock waves. So, what is uh, piezoelectricity? Uh, we usually see it uh, in the um, in the form of uh, a piezoelectric crystal. So there's some sort of um, asymmetry and symmetry that exists within these crystals that when you um, squeeze them, they can um, displace the, an electric charge throughout the crystal. And that displacement is what creates this current. So um, they have this very unique structure that you can see and they're used to kind of um, charge the, the flashing light you see in kids' shoes. I don't know if you've seen kids running around and you see this little flashing light that kind of goes off. Yeah. That's usually due to these piezoelectric uh, uh, electricity that comes from those little devices. So they're used for toys for the most part, and they probably would never be able to get as much energy as you kind of see in the Black Panther suit. But it's kind of a neat concept where the deformation of this crystal structure can create an electric current. And then if we couple that electric current to some sort of other device, we can develop all kinds of smart textiles. In fact, I think that's the current, uh, that's part of the current research of these materials is to kind of figure out ways in which, you know, the clothes you're wearing themselves can be used to, let's say, uh, power up your cell phone or something like that. So wait, are these like the, the old school, like British knight shoes that would like light up or, or something like that? I think it's like, you know, like the, um, what I guess they were like Keds or something. I forget yeah. what the what the company was, but you know, I remember I had a pair when I was like seven. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, and I remember like tying them up, and then I just like you know hopping down the hopping down the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. then you know, beg your mom to go out at night so everybody could see your your light up shoes. Yeah, it was always like because you'd wear them, but then you'd have to ask somebody else if they're working, right? Like <laughs> yeah, you, you can't like check yourself. You're just like yeah. you lit? see it, and you're like it's you lit, it? right? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it's interesting to think that, you know, that technology that we use for such, you know, sort of fun and simple purposes, you know, I mean, under the right conditions with the right, you know, inspiration and technological innovation could be, uh, you know, scaled up to see uh, what we see on the screen. You know, so, um, you know, cool. yeah, you know, so that is the technology. Obviously, we have the cultural setting in which that technology exists, but not just anybody can put on the suit. Right. I mean, like if I were to put on the Black Panther suit, as much as I like to think I'd be you know, a bad man, like I can't, I can't be the panther. Um, well, maybe I could be the panther. You could, you're pretty big. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but, you know, the, when we're thinking about the population of Wakandans themselves, I mean, mm. this is a very physically gifted set of individuals. And, you know, they're, they show all of these signs of local adaptation to the environment in which they've been living for thousands and thousands of years. You know, for instance, I mean, the heart-shaped herb. Right. I mean, this is a really sort of special endemic plant to, uh, to Wakanda, and you know, it's infused with this vibranium that it also occurs, for the, for the most part, only within Wakanda. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because in the comic books, Killmonger is actually an outsider. And so in one of the storylines that's presented, it kind of mirrors what happens in the movie where he comes and challenges for the throne and through ritualistic combat defeats T'Challa. But what happens when it's come time to ingest the heart-shaped herb and sort of receive the mantle of the Black Panther, he actually slips into a coma because his physiology isn't meant 
or hasn't been exposed to the vibranium that's kind of permeated throughout Wakandan society. And so he actually is impacted in a negative way because of that. Yeah. And also, you know, we sort of see, you know, this, you know, a stark difference between Wakandans and the rest of us, you know, uh, in the last uh, Avengers movie, right? When, you know, these aliens, they drop down and, uh, and invade Wakanda. And what we see is, you know, obviously you have the Avengers that assemble, but then also, right, pretty much all of Wakanda, right, takes up arms and, you know, and gets into the fight. Now, I don't know if you guys remember the first Avengers movie, but when the T'Chari got to New York City, that is not what happened at all. You know, people were like, you know, running around, had no idea what to do, right? So, you know, the fact that you have these individuals that are able to, to stand with, you know, such gifted individuals as the Avengers, I think really speaks to their, um, to their strength and their, uh, their endurance. So that in combination with, um, you know, with this sort of the seemingly local adaptation to, um, to the toxins in the heart-shaped herb that allows them to actually take it in and then get its benefits, right, suggests that, you know, there are actually genetic changes in this population that differentiate it from, you know, the rest of the populations on the planet. And obviously in the real world, when we look across the vast diaspora of, you know, human ethnicities and cultures and geographic regions, you know, we see these patterns of local adaptation in our own genomes, right? So, you know, if we look at, you know, populations in high altitude environments, right? Andeans, Tibetans, uh, Ethiopians, right? They have undergone specific genetic changes that allow them to operate in these oxygen poor environments. You know, if we go to like towards the equator, you know, populations that have been living towards the equator in these really warm environments have genetic changes that, that lead to morphological changes, changes in shape and size that allow them to deal with the extreme temperatures that occur uh, in, at the equator, and the same at the poles, right? So if we think about, you know, Inuits, they have a very different um, uh, composition, body composition that allows them to retain heat much better. Again, because they've been living in these environments for, for many, many, many generations. Um, so when we're thinking about this idea of like genetics and culture, you know, it brings up the idea, this classic idea of like nature versus nurture. Like what, what makes us who we are as individuals? Is it the environment that we live in? You know, is it our genetic predisposition to whatever? Or is it some combination of the two? And in the movie, we really see this, I think, come out in, you know, this ultimate conflict between T'Challa and Killmonger in the sense that, you know, in the movie, in the, MC, uh, in the MCU, these are really closely related individuals. They're both uh, members of the same bloodline, the royal family's bloodline. And, you know, they're really sort of eerily similar. They're kind of like mirrors of each other in a lot of ways in the sense that they both have this sense of duty and obligation to their people, but it just, it means something very different to each of them. And each, and each of them has come up with very different approach to, you know, achieve that betterment of their respective peoples. But obviously, they're genetically related, but they've grown up in really different environments. So in order to get a better feel for you know, this idea of nature versus nurture and how the two interact, I asked Sebastian a little bit about his own research and you know, what we are beginning to learn about how the environment influences our genes um, and exactly what that means for, uh, for who we are as individuals. So this whole nature, uh, I guess, and nature um, uh, component of, you know, how we all develop is, is incredibly important. And um, I wrote about it just because of this whole 
duality between uh, T'Challa and uh, was it Killmonger or uh, Eric uh, Stevens, I think it is. Yeah. And the, the fact that the two of them really, um, it, it, it's kind of an interesting thought experiment to just have switched them at first and wonder if the same events of Black Panther would have transpired the way that they did. Um, when you think of somebody like Eric Stevens growing up in Oakland, obviously having to fend for himself, he's had to become uh, far more socially resilient given the environment that he was raised in um, and compared to someone like T'Challa, who literally was royalty, right? He was a prince. He got to get the best education, got to be taken care of by the very best. Um, the two of them come from the same lineage. They're both royalty. They're, both of their parents were, were brothers. Um, there's this type of, uh, you know, what if one was in the other's place? So um, my, my training in molecular biology, I, I, I came... I did my PhD at McGill, um, at McGill University in Montreal, where I got to work with uh, Moshe Sif. Now, at the time that I joined his lab, him and Michael Meany had just uh, published a paper looking at how um, a model of maternal care could actually change a chemical modification that gets made to DNA and how this one maternal behavior could shape how this gene got expressed and then later in life uh, have an effect on the responses uh, of behavior, specifically anxiety, in stressful types of situations. So if this was kind of very neat nature or specifically nurture um, uh, contribution of how, uh, let's say, maternal care, which in this case was just a mother who wouldn't look in group of pups, would actually... Um, cause one of these important genes related to stress responses to turn on and turn off and then change their behavior down the road. So it's kind of neat in the sense that there's really this huge component of environment that can contribute to how uh, an individual, whether you're a rat or, or a mouse or a human, the specific mechanism that we're talking about is called DNA methylation. And um, it's a really... Um, interesting way of kind of seeing how we can actually measure the effects of environment on individual genes and how they can possibly result in certain kinds of behavior, uh, perhaps in the case of Black Panther, uh, a behavior where you kind of felt that you were wrong, that you had to fight your way out of uh, adversity, only to make it as far as uh, uh, Eric Stevens did to find out that things weren't necessarily uh, as fair as they really should have been when you think of somebody on the other side of the coin, like T'Challa, who really got everything he, he could have possibly wanted, uh, as well as, you know, loving parents that took care of him where, whenever they could, um, and, and Eric Stevens didn't get any of these things. Yeah, so, you know, there's this really complex interaction between our genes and the environment that we live in, and we're only just now starting to really understand all the different ways that the environment can, you know, can, can interact with our genes. I, obviously, like we've known for a while about this process of local adaptation where you get natural selection on genetic variation, but now we're looking at you know, aspects of what those genes produce and how the environment can actually change the way that genes are expressed by these tags. And we're also starting to learn that, you know, at least in mammals, right, those, those changes that we see can also in some cases be passed on 
across generations, sometimes multiple generations. You know, so you know, we're in the process of trying to understand exactly what does this mean, why is it important, how does it happen? So all these questions uh, at the forefront of biology still. Yeah, and I, I think just even from a fan perspective, the thing that Marvel does so well with their villains is just adding a sense of nuance. And you know, for me, the most I, I, like I, I think the most boring villain in the world is just the big bad that shows up and then runs around and destroys stuff, and you have to get together to fight him just because he's overpowering and he's bad. I feel like you're just talking about Thanos right now. Yeah, no, not necessarily because <laughs> I, I think the whole point there is that. Um, the best villains actually expose the weaknesses in our heroes and cause them to take moments of self-reflection. And I think Thanos is kind of included in that category. So it's why we love villains like Loki or Magneto or Thanos or even the Joker, right? Because they um, cause us to have that sense of self-reflection. And so in the case of T'Challa and Killmonger, you know, Killmonger's basic premise is if you have the ability to help someone, you have a moral obligation to do so. And that's really hard to argue against. I mm. mean, maybe he implements that ideal in a way that's you know, debatable, but fundamentally, I, I think that's a, a principle worth preserving. And so with that, T'Challa actually has to sort of take it upon himself to reflect on the history of his people and where the uh, nation has gone. Uh, from a historical sense and you know acknowledge and, and you know give thanks to those that have come before him But also have the courage to admit where they went wrong mm. and take it upon himself to lead the nation in a new and better direction And I, I think that's where you see the film resolve as a relation to the conflict that he experienced with Killmonger, so um, You know kind of fascinating stuff there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I mean basically I mean, this is the world of Wakanda, right? It's this complex interaction of you know, history and society and biology and technology and all of these things intertwine in all these really complex and intricate ways in order to create you know, this fantastical place that we see and these amazing people that live in it. And then of course, right, this really special hero, uh, T'Challa and you know, his mantle as the Black Panther and protector of, of his nation. Um, so with that, you know, I want to say like this was super fun. Yeah, as always. Always. Yeah. Uh, this is our second time doing this. Yeah, and doing it live. Yeah, uh -huh. and it's always a little nerve wracking doing these things live, right? Because you can't just edit like on the fly when you're on a stage and people are staring at you. Yeah. But this has been a lot of fun, and uh, so we'd love to take a few questions uh, if we have time. But first, I want to thank um, you know the uh, International Wildlife Film Festival. Obviously, yes. second time out here. Uh, all the staff, everybody's working super hard. They put together just an absolutely amazing lineup through the entire week uh, and also a special thanks to Jerry Rafter, uh, Alana Waxman and uh, Tammy uh, Bodlovic for you know, allowing us to you know come up here helping us uh, you know set things up yeah, organizing our, support, yeah, just everything because we would not be up here without them uh, yes. <laughs> rest assured we would certainly not be up here uh, we'd probably be at the airport so, somewhere crying mm -hmm. Um, so with that, so I also want to take time to, um, to thank uh, uh, Science on the Screen, all right? They, they provided us, you know, all this space. They, uh, you know, allowed us to come out here, uh, you know, and we're super, super grateful um, that, you know, that we could be a part of that. Absolutely. Yeah. So again, thank you guys so much, uh, and I really hope you enjoyed the Black Panther because it's Trey Dope. And um, yeah, I hope we can continue uh, having these conversations. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks again. Thanks again.
I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Biology of Superheroes podcast. Please rate us on iTunes, leave a comment. We'd love to hear what you think. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or hit us up on Twitter at SuperBioPodcast. So with that, I'll say thanks again and stay curious. Thank <laughs> you.